Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to over 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So, a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, welcome. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, what about making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. You heard that right. Two months for free. My guest today is Kelly Patillo, the Program Coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Kelly, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You know, we had you on the podcast earlier this year to talk about the Syrian refugee crisis, which is still going on. But before we do that, let's talk about the potential for yet another Middle East refugee crisis as the IDF continues to pummel Gaza and kill civilians. The Israelis deny it, but there are fears that the aim is to drive Gazans out of the Strip into North Sinai. What would be the consequences if that was to happen? Yeah, there is a concern that the trajectory of Israel's military strategy is deliberately aimed at generating conditions in Gaza and even in the West Bank that will ultimately compel Palestinians to move away from their land. Uh, There is a huge risk for the Palestinian cause, for sure, and uh, also for neighboring countries in terms of their security and the politics uh, domestically. Uh, And we have seen rhetoric by governments uh, in these countries like Jordan, even suggesting that a forced transfer of Palestinians to uh, Arab countries' territories could mean an act of war. We should say that the Israelis have for long tried to displace Palestinians from Gaza. There have been previous attempts, especially, uh, for example, after the establishment of the State of Israel in the 1950s, where uh, uh, UNRWA is reported to have started uh, surveys to explore the potential for settling Palestinians in the Sinai at the time. In 2010, Netanyahu himself is set to have proposed a land swap uh, to then Egyptian leader Osni Mubarak. So this has happened before. Uh, you know, some are arguing that this displacement uh, of Palestinians from Gaza into Egypt would be temporary until Israel eradicates Hamas. But first, Palestinians know way too well that any displacement, even temporary, eventually would mean that they will not return. We've seen this, you know, in previous uh, forced uh, expulsion of Palestinians from their land. 80% of Gazans themselves are refugees from the Nakba. And secondly, uh, it is unlikely that Israel will actually remove Hamas. Certainly not by military means, because Hamas, first and foremost, is a set of ideas. And third, I mean, we cannot simply just empty Gaza. You know, we will unlikely see any country that countries absorb a total of 2.2 million people, uh, and especially not Egypt. So we will need first and foremost uh, a ceasefire. And the consequences if the expulsion were to happen, Kelly? You know, it would be catastrophic on different fronts. Firstly, uh, it would deprive Palestinians of yet another chunk of their land. Uh, You know, Egypt rejects refugees as well, rejects refugee camps. UNRWA doesn't operate in Egypt. 
And, you know, famously, UNHCR doesn't cover Palestinians as part of their mandate. So, you know, it seems that there are different proposals going around to accept Palestinians in Egypt, getting Egypt to agree to this in exchange of economic support. You know, some proposals are talking about uh, uh, housing Palestinians in buildings on the west side, on the west side of the Suez Canal. But we're talking about an arid region, a desert, you know, without resources, without basic services. And to be honest, I struggle to see how traumatized Palestinians can be supported properly there. And last but not least, the Sinai is also being a theater of fighting between the within CC's Egypt and uh, ISIS-related armed groups and other armed groups in the past few years. So Egypt is worried about also these threats. So yeah, there are different challenges at play. Yeah, and 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 as you say, there are many good reasons why Egypt would not accept Palestinian refugees and 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 also other Arab states because they would not want to be seen as being complicit in a second Nakba, which you know in effect it would be. You you mentioned Jordan. Right now, there is enormous pressure from the IDF, from settler vigilante gangs driving Palestinians off their land, uh, out of their homes. And these people, and they're led by the extremist ministers, Itamar Ben-Gavir and Bezalel Smotuch, are saying, go to Jordan. Jordan will take you. What, again, if I ask you, what would be the impact on Jordan if such a plan was to succeed? Exactly. Um, and as you know, violence in the West Bank precedes the war in Gaza. And also, if I can add to what you were flagging, you know, as you're referring to violence in, in the West Bank, I also think we should not neglect what is happening in East Jerusalem, where also now we're seeing a rise in violence. Uh, you know, we should not forget that the war in Hamas uh, and uh, the, the attack on the 7th of October was called Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. And, you know, so escalation near the site is a major sign of alarm. Uh, and, and it's a sign that something bigger might come. So we should really watch that carefully. But yeah, going back to Jordan, uh, you know, like all Arab countries, Jordan would like to see Palestinians live in their land in peace and security. And it has been the most vocal Arab country speaking out against what's happening. Both Jordan and the UN have accused Israel of aiming to cleanse Gaza and its people. We've seen a few days ago at the Doha Forum, uh, Foreign Minister Safadi said that Israel was implementing a policy of pushing Palestinians out of Gaza. And both Foreign Minister Safadi and King Abdullah II have toured Europe and the US, you know, warning about the displacement of Palestinians as the red line, uh, referring to the fact that this would be a direct violation of the peace treaty that Jordan has with Israel. You know, uh, they're citing Article 2 of the treaty, which says, Neither party will, within the, their control, cause the involuntary movements of people. So I guess differently than Egypt, though, Palestinian refugees are already part of Jordan's tapestry society. There are about 2.2 million of, uh, you know, a total of 5.9 million registered Palestinian refugees with UNRWA. 40% then, um, you know, these refugees all live in Jordan. Three-fourths of these Palestinians are actually Jordanian citizens. Uh, so, you know, there is a framework in place. Uh, Jordan has a defined structure to deal with Palestinians, UNRWA operates there. Uh, there is a, even a Department of Palestinian Affairs, which supervises all these issues, the cooperation with UNRWA and so on. And, you know, many Palestinians who leave the West Bank would ultimately have families in Jordan to stay with. And, and so this 
it can be absorbed more easily. But I guess the challenge is that Jordan cannot just go ahead and host more refugees from Palestine. Like Egypt, it cannot seen, be seen as complicit in depriving Palestinians of their land. Uh, and as you said, you know, uh, allow a second Nakba. Uh, even before October 7th, Jordan was criticized for opening up citizenship for Palestinians and potentially becoming an alternative homeland, so to say. Uh, so this is a real concern for the country's identity. And just to sort of broaden the framework, Jordan has already had so many refugees, you know, from Syria, Iraq, and so on. It is among the top hosts of, uh, hosts of refugees per capita in the world. Even before the 7th of October, um, you know, Jordanian officials were kind of ringing the alarm, saying Jordan is, quote unquote, at capacity when it comes to hosting refugees. You know, they said the, they would say the protracted presence of Syrian refugees and others threatens the economy, the water resources in the country. And actually, we know the war in Gaza is already worsening and impacting Jordan's economy as well. Uh, and then the other problem is the decline in international funding that caters for the presence of these refugees and helps Jordan cope with them is uh, acute and uh, is a trend that, you know, we have seen uh, a few couple of days ago, the UN has launched the global um, outlook uh, for humanitarian aid. And we've seen that uh, this is a concern uh, even at the global level. So Jordan is grappling with all of this. So both from a principle and politics perspective, but also the operational perspective, this is really difficult. Yeah, and as you say, you touch on the economic situation, the, the, the water situation, the number of refugees that Jordan is already hosting, uh, the decline in funding to assist Jordan. It's all asking too much, really, of Jordan to even consider taking more refugees. But what about Europe? What is Europe doing? What are they bringing to bear to convince the Israelis to stop the campaign of ethnic cleansing that uh, the Israelis seem hell-bent on carrying out? Where is uh, Europe's voice in this, Kelly? If you allow me, I'll use a European favorite expression. I'm extremely concerned about <laughs> Europe's response. You know, there seems to be a real impossibility for Europe to unlock sort of the political potential it has and even contemplate acting in, in any meaningful way. There are several constraints that I see. I think they go very deep into Europe's identity and history. Uh, but I think, first of all, the obstacle, the key obstacle that I see is a pure lack of political will. I mean, I'm sorry to be harsh towards the Europeans, but all things aside, this is ultimately what I see to be the biggest obstacle. The way I see it, extremely dire, unique atrocities are being committed and we're just not doing enough. On the other hand, one thing I see about the Palestinian issue is that it has been going on for years. We have long delved into all the dilemmas, the political dilemmas, the possible solutions. We truly have tried everything and the instruments are there, you could argue. You know, we have European Union regulations, databases that ban goods from Israeli settlements. We have uh, funding to the ICC, accountability mechanisms. But fundamentally, we have not seen uh, that the European Union and European member states have been able to change their calculus to make sure they implement these frameworks, which are part of their relationship with Israel. And actually, we've gone to the opposite direction. Even before October 7, we have cut funding to Palestinian rights NGOs. We've gone on a completely different trajectory. 
And as I mentioned, the second obstacle I see is the history that many European countries have with Israel, like the UK and the role that they've played in creating the conditions for the Nakba in 1948. Germany, the responsibility for the Holocaust. You know, we see this reflected in Germany's unconditional support to Israel, regardless of international humanitarian law, even as we witness, again, unspeakable atrocities. And another obstacle is these European divisions, uh, which uh, I know we've spoken about before. And, he, and the fact that even before October 7, Europe didn't really have a fully fledged plan as to how it was going to secure any progress on the Palestinian cause, and the cause was actually sidelined. But yeah, even after the 7th of October, we have seen the deepest divisions surfacing among Europeans. Essentially, we have two blocks, um, you know, those who want conditions, condition Israel's right to defend itself to international humanitarian law, like the Germans, the Hungarians, and so on. And then on the other hand, we have those who push back against Israel in terms of uh, putting the, the fighting in the framework of the rules. So we have Ireland, Spain, Belgium, and so on. And, you know, some countries tug to, into one or into the other on a more ad hoc basis, but these are kind of the two main blocks. And, you know, these divisions and the war are also resurfacing deep fractures in Europe's society and intertwine on how each member state positions itself with the legacy uh, that they have with regards to World War II, 9-11. So how they tackle anti-Semitism, how they tackle Islamophobia. You know, there has been a 300% increase in anti-Semitic incidents in Germany. There has been a rise of Islamophobia across Europe. And the reaction to these risks has actually been really scary. European governments are banning people's freedom to express their solidarity with what's happening in Gaza. You know, in Italy, actually, the, uh, so the Egyptian activist uh, Patrick Zaki got banned from speaking in public due to his denouncing of Israel's military campaign. You know, in Germany, there has been a crackdown on activists. And all over Europe, we've seen student assemblies on the Gaza war being banned. And the more Europe doesn't successfully deal with these issues, uh, and the more it will be prevented to act meaningfully at the high level to stop the war. I see this in, you know, these dynamics to in interact with each other. Yeah, that's very interesting. On the one hand, you have very strong support for the Palestinian cause, particularly among students, young people, activists, and we're seeing in the streets of London uh, on a weekly basis and elsewhere in Europe. On the other hand, you have these governments who are caught sometimes on one side, sometimes on the other, and a kind of paralysis sets in while this awful war continues. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the ECFR's Middle East and North Africa program coordinator, Kelly Batilo. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. If you'd like to support that independent voice, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Let me ask you now, because what has happened with the Gaza wars, other stories have kind of completely vanished. And I'm thinking of, of uh, Syria. Last time we had you on, you were talking about the situation of Syrian refugees that were being forced back into the country from neighboring host countries, the claim being that Syria was now safe. What What is the situation now, Kelly? Yeah, I mean, you're right in that, you know, the 
the current situation is is just pushing the others on another on, on a secondary sort of uh, level of priority and that's very concerning because uh, the situations are kind of boiling together all at the same time it's not uh, it's not about what the new cycle prioritizes these are still happening and actually i'm afraid um with regards to syria specifically it's only got worse and the war in gaza has contributed to again uh, deteriorating the situation further uh, also for uh, both in Syria, but also for Syrian refugees everywhere. You know, in Turkey, uh, the February earthquakes impacted many Syrian refugees. And the authority, had, the authorities in Turkey had initially lifted some restrictions to freedom of movement for 90 days, then cut it back to 60 days. But, you know, many Syrian refugees have not been supported to rebuild their lives at the same time after the earthquakes. Uh, which have also impacted Syria itself. So it's not like they can go back even if they wanted to and they felt safe. You know, in Lebanon, we've seen a rise in deportations, detentions. Um, you know, we have a very brutal regime towards refugees. This is continuing. The NGO from Lebanon, Access Center for Human Rights, documented more than a thousand cases of arbitrary detention of refugees in 2023. And out of the actually more than 750 refugees, so, you know, the majority, have been forcibly deported by Lebanese authorities. And, you know, the presence of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon adds to the situation and might cause additional instability and backlash in the country towards refugees, especially as Lebanon risks to become another front of the war. Um, mm. So Syrian refugees are kind of caught into all of this and they cannot return to Syria, they cannot stay. So they're just even more in a limbo than before. You know, as for Jordan, I guess it's it's a more stable situation. But as mentioned, you know, the economy is uh, being impacted by the war in Gaza. It was already in a kind of a dire state, uh, even as a result of COVID and previous years. And funding is decreasing, and this is at the center of Jordan's concerns, and it will inevitably have effects on Syrian refugees. What is interesting is that before the war, Europeans tended to just stretch these situations, see how far they they could go, really, in terms of how it looked like they thought these countries can sort of contain the instability a little bit. I think, and I hope at least, that with the war in Gaza, uh, one lesson for Europeans is that we cannot just leave these trends and dynamics boiled in the background, and that sooner or later something terrible will happen. And like in the case of October 7, we've seen that it can easily happen and be way worse than we can ever we could ever imagine. So I hope that they take that and use it to actually address these situations as they should be. Yeah, but and also just to confirm, the the line is that Syria is now. A safe country. People are not as familiar as you are with the situation. Look at it and say, "Well, it, it's stabilized. There's very little fighting going on. Why can't people go back? After all, it's their country, and uh, and, and and the situation is 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 quite calm and safe." What do you say to that? Well, what I say to that is that um, an absence of uh, a wider war and uh, some pockets of Syria being not you know, no theater of violence doesn't mean that a country is safe. So, you know, humanitarian needs are growing um, and funding is decreasing. We've seen the World Food Program cutting assistance for Syrians in 2024. 
And, you know, armed conflict has stopped uh, in general, but the war is not really over. Violence in Gaza is actually making things even worse. Israel has uh, started uh, uh, targeting some areas in Syria, like the Damascus and Aleppo airports, which are believed to be linked to Iran. And actually, there have been uh, also strikes to U.S. bases in eastern Syria by armed groups, uh, for example, from Iraq. And yeah, the, the again, the war isn't over. October, uh, so the worst escalation in the past uh, four years, I think. Assad and his allies, like Russia, launched uh, airstrikes in Idlib. They said it was to respond to a strike at Homs Military Academy, um, allegedly. Dozens of uh, Syrian civilians have lost their lives as a result of these attacks. Uh, you know, schools, hospitals have, have been hit. Uh, and there has been internal displacement as a result. So, you know, these episodes are continuing and making the delivery of aid even more difficult, disrupting, you know, the the chains uh, and the operations that uh, NGOs are trying to continue. Uh, More widely, the the Syrian economy is worsening. Syria is damaged, Um, you know, buildings, infrastructure, electricity stations, gas refineries, and all of that. And most importantly, security authorities under Assad's control continue to arbitrarily detain, kidnap, torture, kill people, including refugees who return. On the other hand, in light of all these dynamics, again, we see Europeans, instead of trying to address it in any meaningful way, they actually try to exploit these dynamics uh, and the lack of attention on Syria in general. A few weeks ago, Cyprus was trying to use uh, this assessment that was released by the EU Asylum Agency, which argued that Damascus and other government-controlled areas were no longer you know, violent, and they were trying to use that to put pressure on returning Syrian refugees. But actually, the report actually also mentioned that uh, Syrians could still be at risk of persecution you know, by the authorities. Mm-hmm. But you know, the Cyprus authorities didn't really highlight that. Yeah, yeah. So, so not that safe in reality. But, but look, let's let's talk a little more, if we can, about Europe's response to you know, what you're focusing on—the multiplying pressures that are forcing people to flee war, poverty, climate change. And let's look at North Africa, because the solution from European countries seems to be to throw money at dictators, Kais Saied in Tunisia, Khalifa Haftar in Libya. Um, you know, here's some money. You take care. You stop the boats, and 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 we'll consider job done. How how is that working out, Kelly? Yeah, again, in this case, I have to give you another short answer. I really don't think it's working well for Europeans. There was a some a statistic published by the IOM recently that said death deaths and disappearances on uh, migration routes in North Africa and in the Middle East are the highest that have ever been in the past five years. We've seen uh, in September when there was uh, the mass arrivals of into Lampedusa of migrants, we've seen that actually the arrivals uh, exceeded the local population at some point in terms of numbers. You know, the European Commission itself actually admitted a few days ago that migrant smuggling, which is the center of their focus uh, in terms of debt policy, has never been so profitable and so deadly, you know. There is hardly any evidence that this is uh, going anywhere. In, in, I think what framing bilateral agreements with those countries through migration and border control lenses has done is also shift the focus away from, you know, the need to reform uh, for reforms and to promote good governance 
in countries like Tunisia, like Lebanon, and so on, and actually replace this focus with, you know, just hawkish policies that essentially are based on keeping migrants out, no matter what cost. And the human cost of this has been huge. People have been mm. detained, they're abused and treated in very inhumane ways, actually at European borders as well, not only in these countries. And this is a direct result of Europe's choices. Europe no longer is believed to be a champion of the rights of local populations who feel abandoned. Uh, you know, they themselves are actually eventually compelled to flee Europe. So eventually this policy kind of fuels was Europe, what Europe is trying to stop. And actually to square this back to the situation on Syria and Gaza, for example, I see these policy, policies as actually ultimately arming our own policy objectives in a way. You know, for instance, on a political level, we in Europe say Syria isn't safe to return to. And then our member states continue to issue new decisions, arguing that Syria is safe, like Denmark. And this harms our policy on Syria, ultimately, because it contributes to this perception that the country is safe. So we are kind of saying, actually, the country under Assad is fine. And so this is directly against what Europe is trying to do on Syria. But, you know, Gaza, same thing. Currently, there is no conversation about the fact that we are depriving some Palestinians. You know, the majority of Palestinians does not want to leave Gaza. But some Palestinians should, you know, any Palestinians should still be given the choice. But this is not even part of any conversation, to mm. be honest. And we know that, you know, eventually, this was also true uh, before the blockade. And, you know, this eventually harms our policy because our policy has always been we are on the side of the Palestinian people. We support the Palestinian Authority. We want two states. But actually, this lack of agency, we refuse to give refugees agency, and this is actually harming our policy objectives as well. Mm. And, uh, and here in the UK, this obsession with stopping the small boats, it just feels like band-aids, short-term plasters that aren't dealing with the, uh, the political or the human realities. What's a better solution, Kelly? And, and is there anybody working on it? Where is the EU on it? Uh, I certainly don't see anything here in the UK that suggests that we are working on it, but but perhaps I'm being too pessimistic. You you are right in a sense. I think uh, uh, we should never underestimate the power of uh, very localized sort of initiatives, which are uh, my only source of hope when I look at migration dynamics in Europe. There are very small sort of surgical uh, initiatives by local communities in cities in everywhere in these countries that give me a lot of hope. But yeah, in terms of the sort of the domestic policies, um, it's all driven by, you know, getting reelected. And, you know, in a country, for example, like Italy, uh, which is my country, and I feel like I can talk about it with some degree of authority. Migration is a very convenient tool to kind of distort attention from the domestic problems. The fact that, you know, governments cannot control their economy, that people are, you know, not uh, given what they were promised. But I guess an immediate solution if I were to you know have a you know have a way to sort of change European calculations would be to add clauses to these bilateral agreements they strike with third countries to address the need uh, for these countries to be safe. You know there is a lot of conversation in the UK about Rwanda, how safe it is, even people from Rwanda coming out saying we don't feel safe here, why would you send refugees there? So these agreements are currently not focused on you know putting the concern of refugees at the very core center 
And uh, more and more, we actually instead see a shift towards border control measures. We know there has been uh, shifts in the negotiations between the EU and Turkey to sort of uh, shift the funding towards border control more and more. The irony is that in the speeches that the EU does, like Borsna on their line saying a few days ago uh, that the priority is to uphold the dignity of migrants and refugees, work with compassion. Uh, and uh, this is a stark contrast with, what, with actually what we see, you know, detention centers where violence and human rights abuses are perpetrated, pushbacks, any obstacles for migrants on boats to safely reach Europe, directly attacking migrants at EU borders. Um, just a few days ago, there was actually a report that Frontex collaborated with Libyan militias that are tied to the Wagner Group uh, to, you know, uh, counter uh, migrant movements. Frontex, that's the European Border and Coast Guard Agency, collaborating, as you just said, with armed militias. So this clearly violates, you know, the European, European principles like do no harm. Um, in sort of the framework of their cooperation with Libya. Um, integration is another uh, existing durable solution that, that we have to tackle migration. But currently, there is little conversation with host countries on this. You know, this would require continuing sustained funding to these countries, but also showing a commitment that takes into account their concerns, uh, the fact that they are overwhelmed with the presence of refugees. But instead, we establish a relationship of, you know, payer service provider. And it's a very toxic dynamic. And uh, it also puts European countries at risk of being blackmailed by these countries, like we've seen with Turkey and Tunisia. And by the way, this is also expensive. The UK has spent a third of their overseas aid funding on accommodation of migrants. Mm -hmm. The deal with Rwanda is costing more than double the initial amount. So this is also very expensive and very hard to justify for voters like me who are wondering where the taxes are ending up. Mm. Um, the other solution, uh, there is also a third solution, which is resettlement. And it's really something that the EU has not done a lot on. This year, uh, most European member states haven't resettled the single refugees. And, you know, there was a, there is an EU temporary protection scheme that's worked really well with Ukrainian refugees. Um, and one last point, maybe, you know, politically, we need to kind of organize better in terms of how the forces that still exist within Europe that affirm solidarity with migrants and refugees, uh, you know, get together and speak up as opposed to those who, you know, look at uh, to close borders, which have been very successful, actually, in advocating for policies that exclude refugees and disregard their rights. We actually, on the side, uh, those who are on the side of solidarity have not been this successful. And so we need to kind of try to find a way to reorganize ourselves, especially as next year we might have an EU parliament that is much more hostile to migration and refugees. And we don't seem to be successful right now at advocating for uh, uh, more solidarity. And so we need to change that as well. Mm. Yeah, very big challenges in, in, in the political climate that we find ourselves in and, and the demonization of migrants as a convenient uh, political device to secure votes, to win elections. It, it, it's all uh, a very difficult landscape. But I thank you, Kelly, for uh, taking the time to discuss it with us. No worries. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me again.
You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Kelly Patillo, the program coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa at the European Council on Foreign Relations. You'll have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Will you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details and how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best Amina analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Kelly. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of nearly 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights, insights you simply will not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. Music